Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. All right, let's go to Acts chapter 2 in the Word of God, which he calls the bread as well. Acts chapter two, we're in a series called Welcome Home where we're studying uh, these four pillars of the early church. The first Christian church um, began in Jerusalem and then made its way to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth as the Lord had commissioned the apostles to do so. Looked at, we're looking at four pillars. We're on number three this morning. We looked at the idea of the apostles' teaching. The early church was devoted to the teaching of the apostles, not devoted to the personality of the apostles, not devoted to uh, the charisma of the apostles, not devoted to an apostle, but devoted to their teaching. And their teaching was built on the teaching of the Old Testament writers and prophets, who then gave way to Jesus, the Word. Word became flesh, and his teaching built on that consistent all the way through to the apostles. And we said, a church whose teaching is not consistent with the Old Testament and the teachings of Jesus is no church at all. But they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. And then that builds into the fellowship. And we looked last week that fellowship, true biblical Christian fellowship, is rooted at the foot of the cross because we have everything in common at the foot of the cross. And the question is not how you sin, but that you sin. And because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we all have an even playing field at the foot of the cross. And that's where we find koinonia or fellowship and common ground. But that has to be built on the apostles' teaching to get us there. And this morning, we're gonna shift into these last two, which are uh, more practices of the church. And for many of us, that scares us. We don't wanna talk about church practice. We're like talk, talking about church feeling more, but it's a practice that gets us to where the Lord needs us to be. We're gonna look at this morning that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, the breaking of bread. Now, there's gonna be a lot of scripture we go through this morning. Um, so you will not be judged if you don't want to flip in your Bible. You just want to look at the screen, but I would encourage you in this way, take some notes so that this week you can go back and read these passages. I'm using them in context. So there's even more context around them. And I would just encourage you, write these down, study them this week. Um, just again, see what the Lord has for you. You don't need me. You need the spirit to teach you and you can do that through the word of God. We're looking at this idea of the breaking of bread. So there's two ideas of breaking of bread depending on, um, the commentators reading this passage. And some would say this idea of breaking of bread because in the New Testament and the Old Testament, it refers to a common meal. What we have to understand though is this is not a common meal like we have common meals. We have common meals with Chick-fil-A and we're throwing nuggets in the back seat, hoping our kids eat something before soccer practice. That's what we would determine breaking of bread. But for, for them, this was a sit down, everything stops, someone has cooked, someone has prepared, and we're gonna sit and we're going to partake together. That's what the breaking of bread as a meal would have been. But in context here, here's what I believe, and based on what I've read and studied, this is referring to the ancient practice of the Lord's Supper or communion. They believe the church devoted to communion, but not devoted to necessarily the act of communion, but the why of communion. Not the how or the that, but the why of communion. So we're gonna study that this morning and then at the end of the service we will participate in communion together. But I think what we miss sometimes, especially in our churches in America and Western churches, 
particularly, really for us as Baptists, is that we miss some tradition that comes along to give us the foundation of what we do when we partake in communion. Uh, There are some more mainline uh, denominations that would root this in all types of orthodoxy and sacrament that we miss. And I don't know how you feel about tradition. Um, For many of us, we run from tradition because it sounds boring and routine and rote. And we think traditional, we think about a type of music. We think of tradition, uh, we think about things that we just do, but we don't know why we do them. But I think tradition carries great value for us. Many of you have traditions in your life. I don't know what kind of home you grew up in. We grew up in a Christmas tradition kind of a home. Anybody else have a Christmas tradition? You have a bunch of Christmas traditions. Some of them are holy and right. Some of them are just plain out silly that we do, and then we, but we just keep on doing them. I am the oldest of six. It's me and then five younger sisters. And my mom um, loves some traditions around Christmas. And it's a great way to unite our family And at this point, my five sisters have become, most of them have become mamas. So they've carried on the tradition. In our house, we have another mama who has her own mama, who has their own traditions. So we do some mix and match of them. One great one for us growing up was that every Christmas Eve, we'd go to Christmas Eve service. And then we'd come home and there would be Christmas pajamas on our beds. Um, That the pajama fairy, I think, is what we had in my house because I had sisters. And to this day, my mom denies that she has anything to do with these pajamas that show up on our beds. To this day, good for you, mom. I know where they came from, dad. Uh, We in our house, we have a pajama ninja because we have boys. So we don't have fairies, we have ninjas in our house and the pajama ninja. We all have traditions and things that we have been passed down from generation to generation. For us, the, the participation in the ancient ordinance or sacrament of communion has its root in thousands of years of historical tradition. Uh, You might have heard it called the Lord's Supper, uh, maybe just coming to the table or the Eucharist. It's all different words that mean the same thing. We're gonna talk about this idea of communion this morning. But this is rooted in some Old Testament practices. So if you go to Luke 22, you can stay in Luke 22. We'll be back and forth from Luke 22. Luke 22, Jesus has uh, lived on the earth for about 33 and a half years, has performed three and a half years of ministry, has 12 men following him called disciples, and they're making their trek into Jerusalem for the ancient Hebrew practice and celebration of the, the day of unleavened bread or the feast of unleavened bread in which they would celebrate what's called the Passover. So I want to show you, first of all, how important this feast is, this tradition, this sacrament is to Jesus. And then I wanna show you then how he reframes what was old tradition and makes it new in a way that we practice it today. Luke chapter 22, and we're gonna start in verse seven. Then came the day of unleavened bread. A number of Jewish feasts in the Old Testament, and they all represent some something that happened by the hand of God. This one's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John ahead saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They're on their way to Jerusalem, which is where at that point Jews would gather at the temple to celebrate Passover. So they didn't just have it in their homes, but they would come to this one place to celebrate Passover. Verse nine, they said to Jesus, well, where will you have us prepare it? We're not going anywhere. We're just going into town. Where do you want us to prepare it? In verse 10, he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? 
And it's okay as you read this to be completely blown away by what's happening. Because Jesus sends two men into a huge city of Jerusalem and says, find one man carrying water and then tell him that we're gonna go eat the Passover at his house. That's okay for you to, you would never, you should never do this. But this is how Jesus had worked the situation. Verse 12, he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. Again, for generations, um, Hebrews, Israelites, Jewish, of Jew, Jewish faith would celebrate the Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They would celebrate other feasts, but this was kind of the beginning of their calendar. It started everything over for them as the Feast of Unleavened Bread or what we're going to call Passover. And at Passover, they're celebrating something that happened in the Old Testament, which many of us are probably familiar with. And so with this tradition comes a lot of different ritual to go along with it. And the problem for us is that we begin to worship the ritual more than we pay attention to why the ritual is in place to begin with. And it happens for us even in church. We become more attached to church attendance than we do to worshiping Jesus. We become more attached to uh, the tradition of church as opposed to the worship of Jesus. But this is important to Jesus because he is a Jewish man leading Jewish men in a way that he would reframe Jewish faith. Again, so for us here, 2020, I want you to understand what I'm saying to you this morning. What we will participate in later in communion has its roots in something that happened thousands of years ago. And I don't know that you and I understand how sacred that is because we run from sacred things at this point. We run from any point that makes us feel uh, still or silent or have to wrestle with ourselves. We, don't, we run from sacred things. We make light of sacred activity. In fact, if you wanted to go home and Google, not now, but if you want to Google selfies at the Holocaust Museum, you will find tens of thousands of people who take silly selfies at a museum dedicated to, to honoring those who have died in the Holocaust. A sacred, mournful place that has become a place of silly selfies for many of us. And this is for many of us why we run from tradition is because we just don't know what to do with it. But the fact that you and I are here this morning sitting in this building, singing these songs, reading these words is sacred and they come from thousands of years of history. 15, 20 years ago, um, we thought that the way to get people to church was to do away with sacred things. But here's what we've learned. You cannot out-entertain the world. We can't be flashier than Disney. We can't be better than Netflix. We can't be um, more celebratory than a college football game at church. We just can't do that. But what we have on our side is the sacred truth of Scripture that roots us. In a world that seems to push us from shallow to shallow, we have something that grounds us in depth and that anchors our souls. And I wanna invite you into that this morning. But this is not a thing to run from or be fearful of or to, or to think will be boring to us. This is something that will root you and will then garner true celebration. So Jesus wants to celebrate Passover and Passover um, started back in Exodus chapter 12. Again, turn there if you want to or you can write notes down and go back to it later. Jesus... Um, it's part of a long line of, of this lineage 
And for a Jew, they go back to Father Abraham, who had many sons. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm. Uh, those of you who don't, haven't been in church for a long time, that's a song we used to sing. Uh, so Abraham is the father, really, of the Jewish faith, the father of many nations. Abraham uh, would begin kind of this lineage or this family tree. He, would, he and his wife had a couple of sons, but one was the name Isaac. You know, Abraham was then called to sacrifice Isaac. God provided a ram, which is a whole other story that bears its weight on us today. And then Isaac um, would have a son by the name of Jacob, Jacob and Esau. Jacob then would have uh, 12 sons, one whose name was Joseph. Joseph liked technicolor dream coats. And so his dad made him a coat of many colors. He was the, the apple of his father's eye and the other brothers hated him. And so they um, tried to have him killed. They beat him up and left him for dead, went home and told his, their father that he was dead. But he actually got taken by slave traders who would take him back to Egypt. In Egypt, by God's sovereign hand, he placed Joseph in Egypt. Now, this is kind of off topic, but for you, when you read the Old Testament, whenever you read Egypt, primarily it is a place, a geographical place, but secondly, it is a representation of slavery and evil. Egypt as a place is significant, but what it tells us in the story of scripture is Egypt represents slavery and bondage because it's there in Egypt that the Israelites will be um, put in over 400 years of slavery to hard taskmasters led by pharaohs who would lead the Egyptian people to beat the Israelite or Jewish people. That would later become Egypt, then would become the idea would take its way to Babylon. And then in the New Testament, we hear of Rome, so in the New Testament, the Roman Empire represents the similar idea of Egypt in the Old Testament. That's off topic, but I think good for you to know as, as you study and read scripture. But in Egypt, um, the Pharaoh puts out a law because so many Hebrews are, the, the number of Hebrews is growing because they are um, in slavery and then babies are being born. And Pharaoh is afraid that the Israelites, the Hebrews, will overtake the Egyptians and so he puts a law in place that the firstborn Hebrew um, boy must be killed um, as he is born. There's a Hebrew family, and the mama would give birth to a boy by the name of Moses. They would put Moses in a basket and float him down the river. And again, by God's sovereign hand, Moses would find his way into the household of Pharaoh. And Moses would rise to power. This is what God does. God takes what is meant for evil and he turns it for our good. That's from Genesis 50, 20, written by or spoken by Joseph, the son of Jacob. Moses rises to power. He sees his Israelite people being beaten and he goes out and he takes care of business, ends up killing an Egyptian slave master. Word gets out that this is who, what he has done. He runs and flees and finds himself on the backside of a mountain working for his father-in-law quick story, if you're going to run from your consequences, you will find yourself working for your father-in-law, which is way worse than any consequences you will face with your sin. He's on the backside of a mountain, and then God speaks to Moses through a burning bush. And in the burning bush, he says, I'm sending you back to Egypt, and you will set my people free. So God sends him, and God sets his people free through the series of 10 plagues, in which he, he um, hardens Pharaoh's heart, softens his heart. This whole thing happens to bring glory to God. The 10th plague 
would be where God would decree in order to pay for the injustice of the Egyptians who are killing the firstborn Israelites, that God then to right that injustice would use his justice and would say the firstborn of the Egyptians in a household would then have to, would be murdered um, overnight. Unless, unless they took a lamb into their home And then a week or two later would kill that lamb and would spread the blood of that lamb on the horizontal and vertical posts of the door, of their door frame. And if they did so overnight, when God sent the angel of death to take care of the firstborn child, the angel of death, if he saw the blood on the door frame, he would pass over that house and that firstborn child would live. Bible um, tells us in Exodus that as the angel of death passed over, you could hear the screams from the Egyptians through the middle of the night. And they came after the Israelites. And the Israelites in haste were set free and fled from Egypt. But in such haste, they didn't have time to wait for the yeast of their bread, the leaven to rise. So they carried unleavened bread. And that land that they killed over their doorposts would become their meal as they fled Egypt. This is the Passover. But from that moment, from that experience, God will give an explanation and then a tradition to follow. Exodus chapter 12, verse number 24. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. This is the beginning of Passover. And when you come to the land, the Lord God will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. God had said, I will set you free from slavery in Egypt and I'm going to take you to a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm gonna take you to what's called Canaan or the promised land, which harkens back to Eden. So it's a brand new beginning for his people. And he says, I'm gonna set you free. Now, when you come to Canaan, when you come to the land the Lord will give you, you gotta keep this service or this ritual, this tradition as well. And when your children ask you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Okay, so we're gonna celebrate communion. Communion finds its roots in Passover and the tradition of the Passover meal finds its beginning all the way back to when Charlton Heston set God's people free from slavery, when Moses set God's people free from slavery in Egypt. And the Passover is what ensued. And there's a number of things that happen at this Passover feast. If you've ever been to a Passover Seder, I would encourage that strongly. It's so symbolic and, and uh, rooted in ritual. And God puts this into place. So when we meet Jesus in Luke chapter 22, he wants them to celebrate this Passover meal. Again, but we've lost, we've lost the ability to sit in sacred spaces. So I wanna encourage us to do that this morning. I wanna encourage us to just be willing to go somewhere sacred with us this morning. Be willing to go there. So for the Israelites, the Passover reminded them of where they stand and how they got there. They would uh, have this feast every year. They would come back to celebrate. They're in the wilderness for 40 years. And in each of the 40 years, at the same time of the year, they would come back and celebrate to remember Passover. And in fact, this would become the Lord's identity to them as he walked with them through the wilderness and into the rest of the Old Testament. He would say to them that I am the Lord your God who set you free from slavery in Egypt. In Exodus, when God gives them the 10 commandments, he doesn't start with commandments, but he starts with his identity. And he says, 
Hear from me, I am the Lord your God who set you free from slavery in Egypt. The intention was that every Israelite, every Hebrew would refer to God and remember that he is the one who set them free from slavery to Egypt, in Egypt. Again, which is great when things aren't going well, they like having that to fall back on. Well, that's right, but we still have God to help us. Things aren't going well, that's right. God is the one who set us free from slavery in Egypt. 40 years later, though, they're about to cross over the Jordan River into the promised land, into Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. And I don't know if you've ever taken your kids somewhere, maybe like Disney World, you've gone on vacation, or you've just taken them to like go swimming at a pool or Chuck E. Cheese, God bless your soul. If you've taken them to any of these places, if you're like our family, you have a conversation at home, which goes something like this. Hey, we're going to go somewhere and I need you to be on your best behavior. All this is going to happen but I need you to remember our rules, right? Or if you're going to like, you're going to your family's house for Christmas and you know that every other family from your family will be there and they have different rules than you do and you have to tell them, hey, when we go in here, when we get to grandma's house, remember our rules. You may not have ice cream for dinner. And then you pull up to the house, you pull up to Disney World, you pull up to Chuck E. Cheese and what do you do? Do you you know what you do? You tell them again just to remind them. I know we've talked about this, but we're about to, it's about to get real now. And I need to remind you of who you are and what our rules are. And if you don't obey them, this will be the consequence. Have you had those, have you had those interactions with your kids? This is what Deuteronomy is. Deuteronomy is the second telling of the law. God gave the Israelites the law and then they blew it for 40 years. And so as they're on the edge of the Jordan about to cross over, he stops the car and says, hey, before we go in, I need to remind you of who you are and what the laws are. So they're about to enter this land and he's going to speak to them in Deuteronomy chapter six. This is verses 10 through 12. Now, when the Lord God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we talked about that, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full. So now he's saying, we're, you've lived in 40 years in the wilderness where I've had to give you manna from heaven and quail. I've had to feed you. Listen, you're about to go into this land where you're gonna have everything you ever wanted. And you haven't worked for any of this. I built this. I built all of this. Gigantic grapes, beautiful trees and vegetation, homes to live in that you haven't built. You're about to walk into a land of plenty and I need to remind you of something. He says in verse 12, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Because it's one thing to remember the Lord in hard times. It's another thing to remember the Lord in good times. But the calling card of the Jew, of the Israelite, is that they would always remember that God is the one who set them free from slavery in Egypt. This is central to them. This is the story they keep coming back to. Through the lamb, God rescued the Israelites from slavery to Pharaoh. This is important. This is our foundation. Through the lamb, the Passover lamb, God rescued the Israelites from slavery to Pharaoh. Okay, this is, again, this is their central, their core story that they always go back to to remind them who they are. This is what they are going back to. It's what resets them. So the question for us this morning I want you to wrestle with is, what is your central story? In plenty and in famine, 
what truth do you go back to to determine your next steps? What is the central story of your life? What are the defining moments of your life? What governs you? Where do you go to reset your perspective? And we don't do it on purpose. We just fall into some pattern where this becomes the the lens by which we see the world. Is it your experience? Is it your victories or your failures? Maybe it's something that happened in your childhood, good or bad. Maybe it's your parents and their faith. Maybe it's things that they told you about you or about the world. Maybe there are traditions for you and this is the thing you always go back to. These are the poor substitutes of the bread of life. We all have a central story we go back to in famine and in plenty. But there's one that's gonna override all of them. In the church, we need to have a central story as well. And this is not, these things are not the center for us. Social justice is not the center for the church. Is it an outpouring to enact justice, to fight for justice and love justice and mercy? Yes, absolutely. But it's not our central story. We are not social justice warriors. That's not our primary focus as a church. It's not social justice. It's not even politics. Believe it or not, politics is not the central story of the church. We don't align with a, um, with a country or a nation. We align with a kingdom and a king. The central story of our faith is not how we vote. And the central story of our faith is not our nationality and our pride in our nation. The central story of our faith is not about a pastor or a person. As Christians, our central story is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is his work on the cross. Everything else is a false substitute. Because we can get on the edge of of the Jordan to cross into our promised land, the things that God has promised to us. And those things, those stories of ours will never help us. They won't sustain us in the promised land, nor will they sustain us in the wilderness. But there is a story that will sustain us, and it's the finished work of Jesus. Do you remember ancient artifacts called malls, shopping malls? Anybody remember shopping malls? I think I saw it in Stranger Things. Uh, Shopping malls, when you walk into a shopping mall for the first time, you would find a a mall directory. Remember a mall directory? And you'd stand before this wall with a map on it because you gotta find out where's Hot Topic? I gotta go to Hot Topic. Or I can smell and hear Hollister, but I have no idea how to get there from here. So you go to the mall directory, like where's Belk, where's Dillard's? And as you're looking at the map, there's one thing you're looking for. You remember what it is? It's a sticker, usually in the shape of a star. And on that sticker, it says, you are here. Because to find where you're going, you have to first be able to find where you are. And that is what sacraments, that's what ordinances, that's what traditions do for us when used correctly. That's what, this is what communion does for us. Did you read about Kane Brown the past week? Kane Brown, the country musician who found himself lost on his own property. He went out with some friends to ride four-wheelers to show them around the property. Then it got dark and cold real fast and he didn't have his phone, didn't know where he was on his own property. For us as followers of Jesus, I think there are times we get lost on our own land as well. And we need to come back to where we are and where we started from. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15 that I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you now stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless that is you believed in vain. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Our central story as a church and as a people of God is the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And that is what saves you, but it's also what sustains us. And we will never grow tired of proclaiming the gospel to the sinner and the saint. We will preach it to ourselves daily. And if we have a gathering at which we don't proclaim the gospel, we have lost our you are here. A church devoted to the breaking of bread is a church devoted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our center. This is what happens back in Luke chapter 22. Jesus is going to now reframe the tradition of Passover. He's gonna turn it for us now into communion. And Passover was a huge meal and a number of, of sacraments they would go through to get there. And now we just do it a little bit differently, but it has its same root in it. And it may not be unleavened bread. It might be a styrofoam cracker with a sip of grape juice, but it's the same significance because it's not about what we are doing as much as why we are doing it. Luke chapter 22, verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He is not oblivious to the significance of what's happening. For I tell you, I will not eat of this again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What he's saying is this is the final Passover as you know it. He took a cup and we had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. They would have gone through a number of steps to get here. They would have eaten bitter herbs. They would have um, celebrated a number of different things. And now they're stepping into the portion with the cup and the bread. He said, take this and divide it among yourselves. Verse 18, for I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread And we had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in this moment, for the Jewish disciples sitting before him, everything changes because this had been done in their households and in Jerusalem for as long as they've been alive. They know how this goes. They know the steps. They know the questions that are asked and the questions that are answered. They know what food to eat. They know what's happening. They've seen it prepared countless times. But now at this moment, Jesus says, hey, this bread that I'm breaking, hey, listen, this represents my body, which is broken for you or given to you. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. It's no longer about remembering slavery in Egypt. Now this is about something different. This is about Jesus. Same Passover meal being reframed for us. Verse 20. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, he said, this cup is poured out for, that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. There was an old covenant in the Old Testament. A Mosaic covenant is given by God to his people in the Old Testament. The Ten Commandments are part of that. But this old covenant had to do with how we get in right relationship with God. It's the old covenant. He made it with Abraham, passed down. It's the old covenant. And the way that you consecrated the old covenant was that it was blood would be sprinkled to consecrate the old covenant, the blood of a lamb. And now Jesus says, what's happening now is now I'm giving you a new covenant in my blood. 
prophets have told us about the new covenant. The new covenant would take hearts of stone and turn them into flesh. He would take the words of the law from outside of us and impress them upon our hearts and our minds. This is the new covenant. The old covenant had to do with ritualistic sacrificing of animals. The new covenant has to do with the blood of Jesus poured out for us once and for all. He's reframing everything that they knew to be true. Because through the lamb, God rescued the Israelites from slavery to Pharaoh. We remember that. And it's not a coincidence that happens on Passover. God knows what he's doing and he is active in the details of your calendar. It's not a coincidence when things happen. At this Passover meal, though, we can say this, that through Jesus, God rescued the world from slavery to the powers of sin and death. We may not serve a Pharaoh anymore, but we serve the powers of sin and death until we are rescued by the blood of the Passover lamb, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, who is Jesus. He has become the Passover lamb. In Colossians, Paul says these, these feasts, these festivals are just a shadow of things to come. They're not the true image. The whole history of the people of God is that we are prone to forget the grace and goodness of our rescuer. And so we have to come back to tradition and to our central story. And that's the gift of communion in our New Testament churches today. That's the gift of it. And there's nowhere in the Bible that tells you how often to do it or how to do it or when to do it. It doesn't do that. It's an ordinance of the church. The local church gets to decide. And today we're gonna participate in communion, an ancient act rooted in the history of the Jewish people rescued from slavery in Egypt. And my question for you this morning is, what is your central story? Because this morning, we're gonna go to what should be our central story. And there are three things for us that have to happen at communion. One, we must remember. We must remember. We must remember that he is the Lord our God who set us free from slavery to the powers of sin and death. We remember the victory of the Lord, but we remember our sin this morning. And this is why we don't like sacred things because it draws up in us things that we don't like having to deal with. And that's the fact that you have sinned this week because what's easier for you to do is to point out the sins of other people. But we have to come face to face with this morning is that if we're gonna talk about the cross, we have to admit the cross had to happen and the cross had to happen not because someone else sinned, but because we are sinners in need of a savior. So we remember our sin, but we remember the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We remember the pain and the sorrow, but also the victory and the celebration. And here's what you have to remember. Here's what I want you to remember most importantly this morning, that because of the cross, it screams to you that God is for you. He's not against you. He's given you a way out. He gave us a way out and he's for us, not against us. So we remember Secondly, we have to reframe. Once we remember them, we have to allow this to reframe everything for us. This has to reframe our lives. It reframes our jobs. It reframes our roles as mother and father or grandmother, grandfather, brother, sister. It reframes our roles as student and teacher and boss and GM and line worker. It reframes it for us. It reframes our pain and our joy. When we come back to our central story, the lies and false narratives of the world don't have a chance to tell us what they mean. Only the gospel tells us what they mean. It reframes, it reframes virtual school. Believe it or not, this moment, this sacred act of communion will re- reframe virtual school for you tomorrow, mama and dad. It will. 
Because in the light of the gospel and a God who is sovereign and in control so much that he is for you, not against you, whatever has gotten to you has passed through his hands first. And so while virtual school may not feel like something you want to do, by God's grace and mercy, he is using it to draw your heart back to him. Haven't you asked him for more help in the past two weeks than you've asked him in three or four years? Because God will use the things of the world to draw you back to him. We're going to reframe COVID-19. We're going to reframe social injustice based on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And finally, we have to reframe our relationships. It's one thing to recognize that God has paid for our sin. Here's what else you have to recognize this morning. He's paid for the sin of your brother and your sister as well. Whatever sin he or she has committed against you, it is forgiven by the blood of Jesus on the cross. And you don't get to hold that over them anymore. Because the cross has a vertical component and a horizontal component, so does communion. In communion, we are united both with Christ and with our brothers and our sisters. So as we go to communion this morning, I want to encourage you, we're going to talk about this in a second, that you have to examine your heart. And yes, examine it vertically. I think we need to examine it horizontally. And if there's someone in this room this morning that you are holding guilt over or holding shame over or somebody that you have wronged, it is up to you to approach that person before you take the cup and the bread and say, this has been reframed for me. I'm setting you free. Would you forgive me by the grace of God? We have to remember, we have to reframe, and finally we have to renew. And we renew our commitment to Jesus through communion. We renew our belief that he is the Lord, our God, who set us free. Because as you step in tomorrow to a new routine at work or with your family, as you step into a new routine, you are tempted to fall back onto old stories and old central ideas. You're not good enough. You are good enough. You're good at this. You're the best at this. And you have to fall back to the true central story, which is that Jesus finished the work on the cross. We have to renew our commitment to him. We need to renew our relationships with each other. If you've forgiven someone, you have set them free. You don't get to keep bringing it up to them. And we renew our purpose and our calling in the world. The power of communion ultimately rests in the fact that you are telling the principalities and powers of the air, the workers of the enemy, the evil one, that Jesus is Lord and they have no business in your life. When you declare, when you partake in the bread and the juice, what you are telling the enemy is that he has no business in your life. This is your central story. Not what he says it is, but what Jesus says it is. And if your central story has been something about abuse in your past that the enemy keeps bringing back up to remind you how how dirty you are, you say no to that and you proclaim the good news of the gospel that you are not dirty, but you have been made clean and you are a loved son or daughter by the Lord. In communion, we declare to evil, it can go away from us because we rest in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. God, we thank you for ancient practices rooted in something that happened that matters. I pray that you would root our souls in that same truth. And as we walk out of here, we're people who remember our story, who reframe our present, and who renew our, our commitments for our future. God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.